stranger to you. He's been here uh, several times. Noam has been here. Uh, thank you. Uh, Noam's not only been here several times. We were talking about a, uh, some reporting he did on the public health system in St. Paul, I think back in 2013 or 2014, for those who follow him. Uh, he's written uh, tremendously on uh, the Affordable Care Act. And when uh, Professor Jacobs and I talked about Noam's recent series where he looked at the struggles of the middle class and employer coverage and endeavored to travel internationally in Germany and the UK uh, and in Europe uh, to compare the impact of the growing burden of out-of-pocket expenses, we thought it was really compelling time uh, to bring him back to Minnesota. And even though uh, we've had our first cold snap here, uh, Noam agreed to come in December. So for those who may remember, he actually started his career with the Duluth News Tribune uh, 25 years ago, uh, where he spent three years. So I think maybe this is a reminder of why he's glad to be out of Minnesota. Uh, when, when you walk from your car and, and your feet uh, get really cold. So, uh, But in all seriousness, uh, for some, you may have been surprised to see what's going on in the employer market. But at Blue Cross Blue Shield, we know this is a serious impact every day, particularly for smaller employers. We've seen that growing cost burden. And even though as premium trend has moderated some, uh, the result of that is to push up deductibles, coinsurance, and the out-of-pocket spending that's really impacting I think the heart of the middle class. So when we think about median income, that threshold that uh, half of us are below and half of us are above, uh, those in and around median income, as Noam uh, chronicled and he's going to discuss, are really feeling the growing burden of those out-of-pocket costs that have risen rapidly in an effort to hold down and moderate that premium trend. So in as much as much of that conversation, important conversation has been about the Affordable Care Act, I'm really excited that he'll be able to share his experiences here with you today. And when we think about uh, the Affordable Care Act, the employer market, it's not lost on me uh, as a, a health policy geek that, that that experience is really across all markets. Uh, so for those of you who look at the journal Health Affairs, you'll know that in November, there was a publication about hardship and growing out of pocket burden. And one of the things that was uh, written about in there was an analysis that found 53% of Medicare beneficiaries had a problem paying a serious medical bill. So when we think about employer group coverage, uh, generally we think that's good coverage. We think about Medicare, that's good coverage but we know that those costs are pervasive across the system. And it's particularly insightful when we think about the fact that the US House will consider prescription drug legislation tomorrow, the Senate may be soon to follow, but 30% of that 53% who had a challenge paying a Medicare bill were uh, those uh, prescription drug costs that many of us are hearing more and more about. So what does that mean for policy? We think about the outrageous issue that the Medicare Part D benefit has a 5% unlimited coinsurance rate. So if you look back 15 years ago, no one thought that 5% would amount to much of a burden, but we know now that 5% of a big number for some of these drugs that cost two or three or $400,000 is a big number. 
So in as much as we think about the um, stories that Noam has been able to tell and that we're going to hear about today and the impact in the United States, I'm also very excited uh, for Noam to share some of the experiences and things that he learned from some of those foreign countries. We were talking earlier, for example, about Germany uh, and the standard for effectiveness review that drugs have to undergo in Germany, uh, very different than the United States where it only has to be shown to be as effective as an existing drug. And then it's really uh, price line in reverse because it's name the price uh, from the pharmaceutical company. So I've said more than I probably should. I want to thank Noam for being here again today. I very much look forward to the conversation and thank all of you for being engaged uh, and joining us today. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Scott, for the, the kind introduction. It is actually very nice to be back in Minnesota, notwithstanding the temperature outside. And uh, as Scott mentioned, my, uh, my first job was at the Duluth News Tribune 25 years ago. And in fact, I still remember probably the biggest story during my time at the Duluth News Tribune uh, was the day that the lowest temperature was recorded, uh, at least at that point, in Minnesota up on the Iron Range and there was a heated dispute between the town of Embarrass and the town of Tower about which town actually recorded the, uh, the lowest temperature. And I'm, I'm sure they're still talking about that uh, up on the range. I see some heads nodding here, so maybe people down here remember it as well. Um, but on a, on a, more, a more serious note, um, I, I, I am going to talk to you about something uh, considerably more consequential than uh, the temperature outside uh, and something that Admittedly, uh, it is hard, um, I think, for uh, us to discuss, ironically, uh, given the incredible amount of uh, attention that is getting sucked up by that little political fight back in, back in Washington about uh, impeachment. Um, but as all of you know, as, as Scott indicated, as, as he knows, uh, something very profound uh, and disturbing is happening um, in, in American healthcare, uh, and specifically with, with American uh, health insurance. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the work that, that, that we've done to look at that uh, at the LA Times over the last year. But I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start with a story. Uh, I'm going to tell you uh, about someone named Wendy Matney. And Wendy uh, is 39 years old. I met her in Bristol, Tennessee which is a town in the northeast corner uh, of the state that, among other things, claims to be the birthplace of country music. And Wendy uh, lives in a uh, mobile home outside of Bristol with her husband, who has a job at Walmart, uh, where he is, uh, works at a distribution center uh, down there. They have health insurance through uh, her husband's job, but it is a high deductible health plan. Unfortunately for Wendy, Wendy also has epilepsy, and she has a form of epilepsy that uh, doesn't respond to medication, which is not, not that uncommon. So she has frequent seizures. And if you've ever seen anybody with epilepsy have a seizure, it's a pretty scary uh, thing to witness. And usually when uh, people see someone have an epileptic attack, uh, they call an ambulance. Well, the problem for Wendy is that when someone calls an ambulance, the ambulance comes and it takes Wendy to the emergency room 
And when she gets to the emergency room, they usually run a lot of tests. And more often than not, they'll admit her to the hospital. Well, if you have a health plan with uh, a several thousand dollar deductible, that means that every time the ambulance shows up, you're pretty much guaranteed to get hit with several thousand dollars worth of medical bills. And that's exactly what's happened to Wendy Matney over the last few years. So much so that she now has $20,000 in medical debt. And it's gotten to the point where Wendy is pleading with her family members not to call an ambulance if she has an epileptic seizure because she knows how much it's going to cost her. She and her husband, who had been dreaming of getting out of the mobile home where they live and buying a house, have given up on that dream. And this summer, they declared medical bankruptcy. The hospital uh, where she seeks her care has sued Wendy and her husband and is now garnishing some of her husband's wages from Walmart to pay off the medical debt. Wendy was one of hundreds of people uh, in this country, that, uh, more than 100 people that, that, that we interviewed uh, as part of the series that we did examining, as I said, this crisis. And these are people all over America. I've talked to people in Minnesota, in California, in the South, in the Northeast, people making $25,000, $30,000 a year, people making $100,000 plus a year because all of them are wrestling with the impact of, as I said, this, tr this dramatic transformation uh, of health insurance uh, in the United States over the last 10 or 15 years. So to examine what was exactly was going on, the, we at the LA Times uh, partnered with a number of research organizations, including the Kaiser Family Foundation, to do, uh, among other things, a nationwide poll uh, of people, again, with employer-based coverage. And remember, as Scott uh, mentioned, Employer coverage was long considered the, the, the gold standard. If you had a job at, at, a, at, a, at a large company or even a medium-sized com uh, company in this country, you would generally get pretty good health benefits. And though we have long argued in this country about what form of health insurance and what form of health care system we ought to have, most of the time the, the focus was really on what would we do with the tens of millions of Americans who couldn't get any health coverage at all. Quietly, over the last 10, 10, 15 years, something happened. The kind of health insurance that Americans could get at work became something that covered most of people's medical costs to something that routinely imposed deductibles of $1,000, $2,000, even $5,000 or $10,000. So 15 years ago, the average deductible for a health plan that somebody got through a, a, a job in this country was about $375. This year, it is $1,400, average. And as I mentioned, and as probably many of you know, it is not uncommon to find people with health plans that, of deductibles of $5,000 or $10,000 for a family plan. So what did we find when we started uh, asking people about their experiences with, um, with these kinds of health insurance plans? It's pretty chilling. Four in 10 said they had some difficulty paying for medical care in the last year. Half, half of Americans with job-based coverage said they or uh, a close family member had 
delayed going to the doctor, not filled a prescription, or put off some other kind of necessary medical care in the last year because of cost. One in five said healthcare costs had eaten up all or most of their savings. And one in six Americans, one in six Americans who get insurance through a job said they had had to make a difficult sacrifice in the previous year to pay for health care, such as cutting back on food, taking extra work, uh, moving in with friends or family. And if someone in the household was sick with a chronic medical condition like diabetes, one-third. These are not people who are uninsured. These are not people on Medicaid. These are people middle-class Americans who have jobs and have job-based insurance. Now, when we did this poll, uh, we at the LA Times and, and, and the folks we were working with at the Kaiser Family Foundation were prepared for a certain, a certain amount of, 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 of these kinds of stories. Um, anyone who's followed healthcare in this country knows the struggles that people have with medical bills. But one thing we did in the poll was give people an opportunity to fill in the blank what, give us an example of what some of the difficult sacrifices that people had to, to, to make. And, and, and all of us were, our, our breath was taken away to see the kinds of things that people, people were saying. Someone said, I had to work three jobs at once, not paying a mortgage, avoid going to the doctor, ate like a bird sometimes, gone hungry. My kids didn't get a new bed to share. Some people talked about, and I found this actually in some ways the most disturbing, some people talked about, as parents, the heartache that they had even thinking about not taking a sick child to the doctor because they were afraid uh, of how much it would cost. I talked to a lawyer, a lawyer in St. Paul, six-figure household, who said, it made me hate myself as a parent to even think that way. Now, at the same time that deductibles have gone through the roof, something else has happened uh, in, in, to American workers, which again, I'm, I'm sure will not be a surprise to any of you, but when you think about the actual statistics behind people's financial conditions, it's really quite disturbing. So the Federal Reserve does a survey, uh, I think it's every three years, of Americans' financial health. And one of the interesting things that uh, the Fed has found in the, in the course of doing this research is that the share of American households with disposable income to cover an unexpected bill of any kind has basically not moved in the last 15 years. So through the Great Recession and now you know, going on 10 years of economic recovery, the share of Americans who can afford a $2,000 unexpected bill has not moved. Half of Americans cannot afford, don't have enough liquid assets or ready savings to cover a $2,000 bill. So it doesn't take a Nobel Prize in economics to realize that if you are shifting more costs onto people and asking them to pay more out of pocket for their medical care at the same time that they're finding it basically impossible to save any money for medical care or college savings or childcare or anything else, that there's gonna be a problem. So how did we get here? Well, the story is actually pretty simple, and actually, uh, in many ways, it has roots here in Minnesota, ironically. Some of you may remember that about 20 years ago, HMOs were uh, a pretty popular way of uh, providing health insurance to people. 
and uh, the country uh, sort of moved very rapidly in the course of uh, about 10 or 15 years in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s to move people into managed care. Well, it didn't work out so well, you may recall. Uh, there was a little bit of a backlash, particularly when uh, a lot of Wall Street backed uh, uh, ma uh, uh, managed care companies came into the business. And there was a rebellion among patients who said they didn't want to uh, have a restrictions placed on where they could go to the doctor. The thing was, HMOs actually were relatively successful in taming what had been runaway healthcare spending in this country. But uh, when the backlash began, costs had begun creeping up again. And major employers in this country were desperately seeking ways to control their costs. And an idea that had been sort of floating around conservative health economic circles for uh, a number of years, all of a sudden got a lot of traction. So conservative economists in this country had long been talking about how in America, if we only made healthcare more like a market and we transform patients into shoppers, we could see in healthcare the same thing we saw in computers and airline tickets. And here in Minneapolis, a company by the name of Definity, which was started by a, a, some healthcare entrepreneurs around here, um, came up with the idea of selling this, to, selling this idea to large employers and said, if you give your uh, employees an account that they can keep and they can fund for their healthcare expenses, higher deductibles uh, may become feasible as a way to make healthcare more affordable. And they sold this idea to Medtronic. But there was an important thing that these guys did at Medtronic and also at Definity. They said companies should provide money to their employees for these accounts. And that's exactly what Medtronic did. But of course, it didn't take very long for companies to realize that they could save a lot more money if they didn't fund those accounts. And they just had employee, told employees, you put the money in that account and you, you can use it when you need to for, uh, for your medical expenses. Remember, people in this country over the last 10 or 15 years have been living paycheck to paycheck, and it turns out those accounts really fu weren't funded. But what ended up happening was fairly dramatic. In 2006, nearly half of American workers had a health plan that had no deductible at all. 13 years later, now it is about 17, 18% of workers. So now 80 plus percent of workers are in a health plan that has a deductible. And as we said, as I mentioned earlier, many of them are, um, are very high. Now, this plan, though, of shifting costs massively onto workers worked out fine for one group of Americans. If you made a good living, if you had disposable income, and if you could take advantage of a tax-preferred account to put your money away, it was great. All of a sudden, it was like, it was like a 401k on steroids. People could put money away tax-free, they could invest it, and when they took it out, they didn't have to pay taxes on it either. And lo and behold, if you look at the tax data, 20% of, uh, of America, so, so tax filers who make up more than 100, who, who uh, report more than $100,000 in earnings make about 20% of American taxpayers. They account for 70% of the money that's been put away into health savings accounts. 
The other promise that was made, a member of, of, of this revolution of turning patients into shoppers, how'd that work out? Not so well either. So our, in our poll, one in six, only one in six Americans said they had, they had shopped for, for, for healthcare services. And two thirds said that it was difficult or very difficult to find out how much medical procedures uh, cost. I'm going to tell you a story of another family I met in the course of uh, reporting uh, this series. Uh, named, uh, the patient's name was Rebecca Grimm. They live outside of Indianapolis. And Rebecca is 29 years old. Um, she, her husband, who works in IT um, for a major financial services firm, live in a modest size house sort of in the exurbs of, of, of northern Indianapolis. They have two kids, two, two daughters. And Rebecca's second pregnancy last year ended in a miscarriage. And uh, when, her, uh, when, when, when she had the miscarriage, uh, she didn't pass all of the fetal uh, tissue, and she needed to, to clear it. And there are two ways to do this. One is there's a pill you can take. It costs about $10. And if that doesn't work, there's a simple outpatient procedure to a doctor goes in and, and, and clears it out. Well, the, the, the pill didn't work. And Rebecca, because Rebecca and she and her husband have a high deductible health plan, she went on her health insurer's website to shop around. And she looked, she tried to guess how much this would be in her, the little price calculator that her uh, health insurance company uh, made available to her, said it would be about $900. She checked around to a bunch of uh, medical centers in the sort of northern, Indiana, northern uh, north side of Indianapolis. They all, it all turned out to be about that much, so she made an appointment at the one that was about half a mile away from her. It was an outpatient surgical center. She went in. It takes about 20 minutes. Um, they anesthetized her. She came out. She and her husband were home within about an hour, an hour and a half. And um, a couple months later, she got a bill for $5,948.69. And I mean, the, the, they were shocked. Uh, and they, they, they first they thought something was wrong, and they called the medical center to find out, you know, I thought you said it was only $900. Turned out that was only for a part of the procedure. It didn't count some of the other uh, costs associated with this procedure. So after a lot of um, phone calls and uh, uh, demands, they finally got an itemized bill um, for, um, for, 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 for her procedure. And they were floored to learn that there were 23 individual charges on this bill, including $65.23 for lidocaine, which is an anesthetic, $133.28 for two injections of ondansetron, which is a, a drug to prevent nausea and vomiting, $413 for oxygen, $132.80 for a liter of sterile water used in the procedure. Um, there were two charges for the surgery itself of $2,380. Uh, and $9,782, and Grimm's brief stay in the recovery room cost $720. And she said, how the heck was I supposed to know how to shop for all of that stuff? Well, needless to say, not only uh, are, are people unable to shop, but prices haven't been brought under control at all. If you look at anything like the price of a knee replacement, for example, has increased at twice, almost twice the rate of inflation over the last 10 years. And what has happened? What's the, uh, what's the result of all of this? Well, people are angry. I mean, I've talked to a lot of angry people over the last year. Brenda Bartlett, who's a factory worker in Nebraska, 
was so angry about $2,500 in medical bills that, that she got in her high deductible plan that she dropped her coverage entirely. They don't give a rat's butt about people like me, she said. Sue Anderson, who lives uh, just a little bit of, uh, north of here toward Mille Lacs, had nearly $10,000 in debt through her family's high deductible plan because her son played uh, football for the high school team and had a couple of injuries. She had spent the last 20 years working for a local dentist who she adored and, and loved working there. She had to take a job at the casino because that was the only way she could get uh, a health plan that had a lower deductible and now she has to drive 45 minutes uh, each way to work. Sean Stevens is 40 years old. He works at a Home Depot outside Detroit. He's a father. He and his wife are paying off uh, $1,500 in medical debt from their, um, from their uh, uh, high deductible plan. His wife, who's a hospital scheduler, uh, has taken on a second job bartending at night to make money, and he has put off uh, uh, getting medical care for himself to assure that his daughter, who has autism, can get the medical care that she deserves. They make about $48,000 a year, and um, a couple years ago, he told me that they had looked at getting the, his daughter into the Children's Health Insurance Program, which, as many of you may know, is a subsidized government program for, uh, for working parents. And he learned that, um, that he made too much money to qualify for that, for that plan. And he said to me, he said, he said, I'm not hardcore political, but it kind of stings sometimes. You work and do what you're supposed to, and you really pay the price. Uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up here because I know we're going to talk um, about um, some of the implications of that anger and, and, and what it may portend about the kind of healthcare debate we may have and what kinds of solutions we may search for. But I'm going to end with, um, with, with, with one final story um, because I think it gets at sort of one of the, the real problems here, which is that we in this country, I think, for a long time believed that if you did what you were supposed to and you got a job, a good job with health insurance, that that would protect you. And what we found, I think, uh, in, our, in, our, in our reporting is that that is no longer the case. And um, one of the most difficult um, visits I did uh, over the last year was with the Mackin family who lives outside of Kansas City. And um, the Mackins uh, uh, live in a small house in a working class suburb of uh, Kansas City and their youngest son of, of four, he's uh, four kids, um, was born with um, a sort of uh, constellation of incredibly complicated and difficult um, medical conditions. Bo Mackin, who's now nine years old, um, is epileptic, he's diabetic, he uh, gets chronic um, infections in his, uh, in his uh, uh, lungs, and he's had uh, 53 surgeries in his life, spent more than 800 days in the hospital, um, and the day that uh, I visited them uh, outside of uh, Kansas City was the day that a nurse comes to the house. He's got, Bo's got a little port here on his chest where he gets uh, intravenous antibiotics. And um, the day that uh, I was there, the nurse came and was trying to hook up the IV to, um, to give him the antibiotics. And uh, his grandparents came over, and his dad, who's a sort of big strapping guy, his uh, uh, grandfather is a big strapping guy, he used to work for uh, 
Hallmark came over and it was sort of his thing with his grandson to hold his grandson's hand while he went through this procedure, which is usually not particularly onerous. But on the day that I was there, the uh, port w wouldn't work. And the nurse kept jamming it and jamming it and Bo was getting more and more agitated and holding his mom's hand and pleading with his mother to make it stop. And um, I have two young daughters and I, who are, thank God, healthy, but I don't think any of us who don't have a very sick child can even begin to understand what it is like to live with that. But on top of all that, his mother doesn't work because, as you can imagine, taking care of Bo is a full-time job. On top of all of that that they have to deal with, his mother basically has to spend half her time fundraising because the high-deductible plan that they are on through um, Bo's dad's work requires them to pay a $2,700 deductible every year. And so they have a GoFundMe page. There are local fundraisers with the you know, local owls clubs and everything else. And you know, she said after a while, it just it runs you down, she said. You keep going back to the same people to ask for money. She said it is totally debilitating. So maybe I'll end on that happy note just to say that something's not working. Thank you very much. Usually this time of year is a time of year when um, <clears throat> we think of other people. It's part of our traditions. And um, you know, I can't think of a presentation that cuts more sharply to that empathy about what's going on. And as I read, I think, almost all your stories over the last year, the word that kept coming to my mind was misery. Just misery of people going without food, uh, living with health care problems that they cannot uh, have uh, cared for because they can't pay for it. You traveled, uh, and you've written about this, uh, in Europe, Germany, United Kingdom, uh, and elsewhere. When you talk to Europeans and ask them about um, the cost and how they handled the cost and what impact it has, you know, kinds of things that, as you report, are pretty day, everyday experiences now for millions of Americans. What was their reaction? So it, it's interesting. Um, so I, I spent some time at a... Um, a uh, cancer clinic uh, in, in Germany at a, a family medical practice in, in the Netherlands and uh, at a clinic uh, in the east end of London uh, and, and also a, a tertiary care hospital. Uh, I spent the day in an emergency room at King's College in, in London. And um, those three countries have very different healthcare systems from one another. Um, people here probably are most familiar with the NHS as sort of the, the classic single-payer um, solution. Germany and Holland um, uh, generally rely on uh, private health insurance plans to cover people. But all of those countries um, put pretty strict limits on, on, on how much patients uh, have to pay out of pocket. And so in every country, I would ask the patients that uh, I was seeing, you know, what brought you to the doctor today and what were you most worried about? And people would say, you know, I'm worried about this pain I have in my 
abdomen, I, I don't know what it is, or I'm taking this serious drug and I'm concerned about the side effects. You didn't hear people talk about money. And then I would ask them at the end, you know, did, were you worried about how much this was going to cost you? And uh, I was joking uh, the other day that I might as well have asked them, you know, how's your pet penguin? I mean, they looked at me like I was crazy. That This is just not conceivable that this would be, um, that this would even be in the realm of possibility. And I remember being in the um, emergency room at this hospital in, um, in London where we're, we're talking to this young couple who'd brought their, like, I think two-year-old daughter who cut her lip or chin or something, and they were waiting to go, uh, to go see the physician in the emergency room. And he worked in retail or at a coffee shop or something, and he, he said, God, you know, I, I hear what, what, what goes on in America with those kind of bills. I, I, don't, I don't know what I would do. But for them, it was free. It was free at the point of service. I mean, it's a different, it's a totally different experience. So I want to see if I understand uh, the thrust of what you're saying and you know, step in. Um, what you seem to be saying is we started out a dozen years ago um, with a debate that had been going on for years in which people lacked access to health care, which is the topic you're talking about today. Um, and the source of it was they lacked health insurance. Due to the debate around the Affordable Care Act, we saw the number of people lacking health insurance plummet. It was an historic drop. Um, and there was a lot of high-fiving among geeks like, like us who follow this sort of thing and, and many of you that are concerned about it. But what you're saying is here we're on the cusp of 2020 and we have this, this very profound dilemma. More people have health insurance, but a large number, millions and millions of Americans cannot afford the care that we thought we were guaranteeing them as we extended health insurance. I, I, that's right. And I mean, I, I think the reason for that, which sort of on its face, is, as you suggest, sort of seems incomprehensible, is that we kind of have this unique system in which different people have different kinds of health insurance based on sort of where they live and what their income is and how old they are. And so for some Americans, who gained coverage through the Affordable Care Act, if they were very poor and they got Medicaid coverage, well, health insurance was a, literally a lifesaver for them. Um, and in, in some states, not Minnesota, but in some states where those people were literally shut out of medical care, um, it's, been, it's been a godsend. Um, but you know, the one thing that the, that the Obamacare did not address directly was well, this phenomenon um, that I described of, of, of this massive cost shift onto patients. And I think that is sort of what we now are, 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 are dealing with. You had referenced um, the transformation that occurred in the way in which employers and um, you know, health policy theorists had talked about and thought about um, creating a marketplace for purchasing um, Healthcare, and those of you who've been coming to our series, you know, a decade, two decades ago, we were having conversations in which people who were making these arguments talked about, well, why not create an Expedia for healthcare? And there were efforts here in Minnesota, and this was one of the places of innovation to try to create that. And there were people like Elaine Entoven at Stanford, 
30 years ago who was talking about this. Uh, Regina Hertzlinger published an article on the Harvard Business Review in 2002, and here's what she said. The essential problem with the healthcare industry, it has been shielded from consumer control. She goes on to say, when consumers apply pressure on industry, whether it's retailing or banking, cars or computers, that industry invariably produces a surge of innovation that increases productivity, reduces prices, improves quality, and expands choices. Now, if you pause and think about it, those words, even if you haven't read this article, are probably familiar to you. This is a major approach to thinking about healthcare. I would say it's, you know, it's consumer-directed, it's focused on the demand side. And what you're saying today, and correct me if I've got this wrong, is that this theory has been tested over the last decade, and it has been proven false. Now, if you, if you asked Regina Herzlinger, and I did, about that question, she would say, as would other proponents of this market-driven idea, would say, well, we've never gotten the price transparency that um, you need in a market for a market to, fu to, to function. And that, that is undoubtedly true. One of my favorite studies about, um, about people's uh, ability to shop was conducted about 10 years ago um, by a group of researchers in, um, in Canada. They called 122 uh, US hospitals and wanted to get a quote for a price on a, on a, on a hip replacement for a fictional like 62-year-old woman. And I think they, they were successful, I think, in getting a price like 19 times out of 122. And then some other researchers like repeated this uh, a few years later and they could only get a price nine times. So clearly there is a transparency problem, but I think what uh, I think our, our reporting and other research suggests is that even if there is price transparency, it's difficult for uh, patients to shop for all but a few medical services. So you, know, you, you could, an MRI for example, is pretty easy to compare one thing to another. So people could conceivably call around and get different prices for an MRI. But as anybody who's gone to the doctor knows, I mean, most of the time it's difficult to predict what sort of sequence of services you're going to need. And um, certainly if you're in the back of an ambulance, you, you're not in a position to do much shopping. Um, but one of the things that struck me about um, talking to people uh, about this around the country is I'm not sure that, like, the people that that, that while conservative economists like Regina Hertzlinger and others think that um, this healthcare is a market like, like airlines or, or, or televisions, Americans, the, at least the people I talked to, don't think, didn't want to think of healthcare that way. They wanted to defer to what their doctor said. And I mean, I remember one guy I talked to um, said, you know, I just listen, I just listen to what, what my doctor says. I mean, that's a different kind of arrangement than you have if you're you know, going on kayak and comparing airline prices. Now, just to bracket that, and you've raised a whole bunch of issues, and I realize this might sound a little picky, but this is where we are right now. This is the dominant approach that is still held in Congress, um, that is held in many parts of the country about how to control healthcare costs. It's some model about consumer shopping. And what you're reporting 
has documented, as I read it, is it's breaking down. Now, for sure, there's not transparency. Um, but let's face it, that's not an accident. If you put yourself in the position of a hospital, what do your interests to make your prices transparent? I mean, very little. I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to quibble about transparency because I'm a journalist and we generally like transparency as, as a rule. Um, but I, I mean, clearly, the system is, is, is opaque for a reason beyond simply its complexity. I mean, it's in the, frankly, not so enlightened interest of hospitals and others to make their prices difficult. I mean, the experience of the young woman I was telling you about in Indiana is, is classic. I mean, and I, you know, you pick up the newspaper or turn on the radio uh, anywhere in America and you'll hear similar stories or anybody who's been to the doctor has been subjected to, you know, this kind of, of, of billing. And to some extent, if there is a, uh, if there is a silver lining to uh, this crisis in, in affordability, I think, in high deductibles, it is that it's sort of blown the top off the dirty little secret in American healthcare, which is, you know, $132 for a liter of water. It's the, you know, it's the $500 toilet seat at the Pentagon. I mean, this is, we are now seeing what was hidden for a long time. And it's been hard, I think, for a lot of people to understand some of the policies that the Trump administration has been pursuing because of all the political theatrics going on in Washington. But there has been a very important effort that's uh, been underway um, as part of the uh, healthcare administration, um, the Trump administration, to uh, require that hospitals post their prices. And this is supposed to happen by January 2021, so just about a year off from now. And this has now been tied up in the courts by the hospital association. And so just to add ballast to what you just said, that there's a reason why transparency is not there, it's, it's, it is a threat. It is a profound threat to the most you know, lucrative parts of the healthcare industry. And you know, we haven't started talking about the pharmaceutical industry and, and those folks. Uh, 100%. I mean, th there's no question that, that, that secrecy benefits them. So let's say the Trump administration succeeds um, and that hospitals are forced to, to you know, begin down the path of, of making their prices available for the public to look at and you know, begins to cut into some of the, the, the challenges and the barriers that you've identified. Isn't it still the case, though, that the, the kind of proportion of healthcare that you could shop, you mentioned MRIs, but there's a whole lot of other healthcare out there. How much of our healthcare is, quote unquote, shoppable? I mean, it, it, estimates vary, but so the Healthcare Cost Institute, which is a Washington, D.C. based uh, think tank that does a lot of work with um, uh, insurance claims data and crunching it and looking at, um, looking at how uh, healthcare is spent. Um, I think their estimate was 7% of um, spending is uh, uh, of healthcare services for people with employer-based coverage is is shoppable. And I mean that's because, as as I mentioned, I mean if you're if you're in acute cardiac arrest, not a shoppable moment, right? Uh, if you uh, have a very complex cancer um, that requires you know, uh, courses, long course of chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, et cetera, difficult to see how that's shoppable. Uh, while deductibles are high, um, 
for very sick people, ironically, the vast majority of their care, of course, is covered by health insurance. So beyond people's out-of-pocket maximum, there's no, there's no real reason to shop. If I, you know, my, my daughters uh, were born um, prematurely, they're, they're, uh, they're identical twins, so they had to be delivered by cesarean section, and uh, my wife had some sort of additional complications, so we, 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 we had a, a fairly complicated delivery um, that ended up costing, I don't know, it was six figures, certainly. My daughters had to spend some time in the NICU, I mean, if you have a $100,000 medical bill um, and your out-of-pocket maximum is $10,000, what do you care if it's $100,000 or a million dollars? I mean, there's no reason why you, would, why you would shop based on price for, for that service. And, you know, just to make, make, make clear the obvious, I mean, unless we're prepared to sort of subject Americans to potentially a million dollars worth of out-of-pocket health expenses, I mean, it doesn't seem that that's something that can be remedied. We've talked a lot about the problem, and I think um, you've done a, you know, a remarkable job documenting it, and I think the stories you tell about how this is impacting real people, it's important because it's too easy to get wrapped up in the numbers and you miss what's going on here. And you know, I think the misery of millions of Americans comes through in your stories, and I congratulate you for that. It's Thank a you. hard job to do, and you know, healthcare is not a uh, simple topic. Um, but let's shift over to remedy, solutions. There is a, you know, an energetic, and enthusiastic push for Medicare for all. Um, and I'm wondering if you could help sort out for us whether this is a solution. And let's put the politics aside. You know, we can have a discussion about, you know, could this ever pass or not. Let's just put that to the side. Can you tell us in terms of the mechanics of what, um, Bernie Sanders has proposed, or the alternatives that have been put out by, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, is there something in that mix of what we're hearing from the Democratic presidential candidates that would get at this issue of affordability? So, I mean, it's interesting that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are sort of the two most, I think, high-profile proponents of Medicare for All, um, have increasingly, since since Bernie started making a case for it on, in his campaign four years ago, have moved from Medicare for All as a slogan, um, which obviously resonates with a, with a, a, a section of the, the Democratic base, to trying to make the point that Medicare for All means no cost sharing. And, and, and trying to say, th the reason I'm doing this is because I want you to, go to be able to go to the doctor and it's free at the point of service, a term that anybody in the UK cherishes about the National Health Service, free at the point, free at the point of service. Um, and unquestionably, I think one could structure a government health plan in which it would be the, the, the structure of the benefit would be one in which there is no, um, there are no costs associated with, 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 with seeking care for the patient, and you would finance it through tax revenue, presumably, or some mix of savings from, from other economies, although clearly additional revenue would, 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 be, would be needed, which is, of course, the rub, um, among others, in terms of, 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 uh, of, of implementing it. What uh, uh, Vice President Biden and Mayor Pete Buttigieg and, and 
Senator Michael Bennett from, from Colorado, other sort of more centrist Democrats have proposed, is to make an exist, the existing Medicare program an option, or some version of the existing Medicare program, an option for people if they are not pleased with the, op, with the, the, the health plan that their employer offers, this sort of idea of buying so, in. So would that, just to stay focused on this issue of affordability, would the um, pu so-called public option to be able to join a Medicare-like plan, how would that affect affordability? I mean, it, everything would depend on how the, that plan is structured. I mean, as Scott mentioned earlier, um, Medicare is not as generous a, a, a program as people may believe. I think most Medicare beneficiaries pay for a supplemental plan, which covers um, the cost-sharing responsibilities. But if you don't have a supplemental plan in Medicare, um, you're going to face some pretty steep, steep costs. And um, that's particularly true with, with, with prescription drugs if you, if you don't have the right um, Part D benefit or, or, or if you're not signed up for an, a Medicare Advantage plan. So if it was just exactly like Medicare, it potentially would not be that much more protective. Um, so just to, if I can capture the core of your point, the Democrats have, you know, kind of a range of proposals uh, from Medicare for all to um, this kind of public option in Medicare and essentially expanding out Obamacare um, in terms of the subsidies and mm -hmm. some of the other programs. Um, but whether or not that's going to tackle this affordability issue is an open question. We need to really get into the details to understand the impact on cost sharing, on premiums, on what's covered, are, are people going to be fully covered, or is there going to be this continuing issue of underinsured people? So, I mean, I think... Was that a yes? Yes, that is a yes. Okay. Um, and, and it's a yes and. <laughs> so yes, yes, we haven't gotten into that. The other thing we haven't gotten into is why, why... Why, why does a, a commercial health plan cost $20,000 in premium for an employer? And, a, and why do employers feel this pressure to shift so, many, so much costs onto employees? And that gets at sort of the underlying price uh, of medical services. Because, you know, when you talk to people about why they're angry, and, and we asked this in our poll, you know, who do you blame for... Um, for, 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 for your problems paying for, for, for medical care. So health insurers, sorry, Scott, are top of the list. People blame health insurers, which is not really fair in some respects because health insurers are just passing on the costs of what hospitals and doctors and pharmaceutical companies and device makers charge. And so the and part, I guess, of my answer is to say we don't know what the health plan is going to look like the Medicare for all, the Medicare light, whatever. We also don't know how that plan would actually address the underlying drivers of cost. So this is the another key feature of what we're talking about. We talked about the problem. We started to talk about some of the solutions. And to go a, a deeper level, we have focused so far on the demand side, right? That whole idea of skin in the game and shopping, that's about all of us being consumers and somehow our shopping decisions are going to impact uh, the doctors and hospitals and, and, 
and the drug manufacturers. The other approach, and it's a very different approach, is to look at the supply of, of uh, services and, and care and, um, and equipment and just on down the list. And you know, one idea that you see all over Europe, you must have run into it when you were traveling in Europe, is the idea of regulating prices. Is this a crazy radical socialist idea that, that Adam Smith country of, of United Kingdom has hatched? Well, if it is, everybody else does it, and they must be crazy, because we're the only people who don't regulate the price uh, of, of medical care. I mean, we... we, right, we is that we, true? In, among Western... Well, among I'm, major think, Western. I'm thinking of Medicare, because Medicare... Well, yes, we do it in some, in some context. In the commercial market, we don't do it. We do it in Medicare. We do it in Medicaid. We set prices. Look, we do it in utilities, right? I mean, the price of power is regulated um, in this country, even though they're private providers of, of electricity. Um, so everybody else does it in one, in one way or another. If you're, in, if you're in the UK, the government sets the price. If you're in Germany, where you have private health insurers who do negotiate with hospitals and doctors and pharmaceutical companies to set the price, there are mechanisms in place that make it a little bit less of the Wild West. It's much more transparent. There, there's a uniform price that's agreed to for all services. Um, so clearly that is one, one strategy. Um, can, I, can I share one, one other story about sort of the power of, of, of price in the system? So the last story in our series, which I'm hoping will come out uh, sometime in the next week or so, um, looks at a labor union in Boston uh, Unite Here Local 26, which represents hotel workers uh, in the city. And uh, Local 26 has about 4,000, 5,000 members. They have their own health plan, as, as, as a lot of uh, unions do. And um, they were uh, on the verge of going bankrupt a few years ago because the price of medical care in Boston is off the charts. It's one of the most expensive medical uh, 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 markets in the country. There's, as you know, a lot of Harvard hospitals that charge a lot. They get patients from all over the world. Their prices are very high. And they were so concerned about um, the impact on the plan that they went to their administrator, the, the health insurer that they work with, and they said, help us here. And the first thing the health insurer said was, well, you know, if you, put, you raise your cost sharing and you have more deductibles, you probably can make this more affordable to your workers. And the union said, we're not doing that. We are not shifting costs onto our members. Our members are making $10, $12 an hour. We're not going to do it. But what happens if we try to identify the most expensive hospitals and we target them and we say, what if we say you can't go for your care to the Mass General and the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston anymore? What would that do to our, 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 the cost of our insurance? And so they ran all these numbers. And they came back and they figured out that if they removed Mass General, Brigham, and Boston Children's Hospital from the network of um, hospitals and that, that their members could go to, they could save so much money. And bear in mind, they could also go to some pretty high-level, internationally renowned medical centers like Beth Israel Deaconess, Tufts, et cetera. They could save so much money, there would be no cost sharing. So they, and they had to take this to their members and they had a vote on it, and some of the members didn't want to give up going to these world-renowned hospitals, but they voted two-thirds to one-third to back this plan, and simply by removing the most high-priced places for medical care, they saved so much money that 
All medical care is free at the point of service for their members, except for $100 if you go to the emergency room, which is waived if you get admitted for a real emergency. They pay $1 for generics, $12 per specialty drug. And on top of that, there was so much additional savings that they were able to plow it back into wages. And the hourly wage for a housekeeper in Boston went from, I'm not going to remember the, the exact numbers, but it went from like, it went up 30% in over four years. That's the power of price in, 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 our, in our medical system. That's a pretty good story. <laughs> Thanks. Is, it, is, it, is it being adopted in other cities? Well, so the, the challenge, of course, is that there was a trade-off. Yeah. There was a trade-off, and right. they, you know, the members couldn't go to Mass General anymore. And so this gets back to what I was mentioning earlier with the lessons learned from, from the HMO backlash, which is you have to be very careful about cutting off people's choices because that traditionally has been the value that Americans cherish most in healthcare. So just to kind of continue this list of um, different ideas on the supply side, and particularly looking at prices, um, you've got Nancy Pelosi, who's introducing a, um, a, a prescription drug um, cost control legislation tomorrow. And their idea is to, um, to force the pharmaceutical companies, like some countries abroad, to demonstrate that the drug that they're introducing produces better outcomes. Um, Senator Grassley, from a Republican from the state of Iowa, has been working in a very diligent way, as has been his history, with Democrats. Bipartisanship. It's real. Um, and if you get out a magnifying glass, you can find this, this case in the Senate and the Senate Finance Committee. And what Senator Grassley is proposing is that if prescription drug prices go up higher than inflation, then there's going to be a financial penalty on the, um, the, the, the medication manufacturers. Are those realistic ideas? Do you think this is kind of on the agenda now and it's kind of, it's gonna happen? The question is, when? Um, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think clearly- so it's, it's, so not, it's not a situation where we're just flummoxed. There are no ideas out there. Correct. There are ideas out there. You've mentioned what is happening in Boston. There's a kind of a more liberal idea that Nancy Pelosi is proposing. There's a more, I would say, centrist idea that we're seeing from uh, Senator Grassley. There are ideas out there. There are ideas out there. I mean, and the question with, with, with dealing with costs in healthcare has always been a question of political will um, and whether or not elected officials are willing to take on um, powerful uh, interests. I, I, I just finished a book um, a couple weeks ago on uh, Senator Estes Kefauver's efforts to take on the prescription drug industry in the early 60s. And um, as, 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 as many of you may know, Senator Kefauver sort of was, was known as a crusading, uh, crusading lawmaker, took on organized crime, and he was outraged uh, in the late 50s and early 60s by the behavior of the prescription drug industry um, that um, was paying doctors to um, shovel out their, um, their prescription drugs, was dumping loads of advertising uh, into the Journal of the American Medical Association and other publications, and was um, w 
engaged in all this backroom dealing with other uh, drug makers to extend patents and so forth. Does that sound a little bit familiar? This is early 60s. And um, in the end, um, the, the legislation that, that, that Senator Kefauver successfully got to President Kennedy's desk and that was signed made some really, really trailblazing changes to the way the FDA regulated um, prescription drugs, made it easier, for example, for the FDA to remove drugs that were, that were dangerous. But you know the one thing which he couldn't get through was any reforms that would touch the cost of pharmaceuticals because the drug industry was had a stranglehold on Congress. We're running out of time, so I want to make sure I get to um, more of the questions that that our friends here in the audience have, have given us. Um, so one question is, we haven't talked about it, why not make choices about healthcare quality um, that delivers and healthcare services that don't deliver? Um, and I was thinking about this question, and here would be the example that comes to mind. You traveled to Britain and and took a look at the National Health Service. In the National Health Service, there is a, a kind of mindset that this is a system. If you say no to a certain type of services in one area, you can take that money and put it into another area. Let's say you give birth, every new mom is gonna have a nurse coming to her house for several months, once a week. And I can say as a father, having a new baby in the house is terrifying. Because um, you don't get trained. Uh, and in England, you get someone who's coming to your house. But on the other side, they made a decision that advanced end-stage renal disease was very expensive, and it did not produce long-term uh, um, and positive life quality changes. And so they scaled back that. So is that, is that also an option in America, that we could really get into these decisions about um, areas of healthcare that maybe we're not willing to pay for? So this is a question that I think advocates of Medicare for All have not sort of wrestled with directly. So, so we as a society have been rationing healthcare for decades. We just do it irrationally. And so therefore, <laughs> we, don't, we, don't really, we don't really keep track of it, right? I mean, people, people who didn't have health insurance were rationing their health care, and we were okay with that. We tolerated that level of rationing. Now, by imposing very high deductibles on people, we are forcing people to ration their own health care, and they're not getting drugs that they need or what have you. As soon as you have a government system in which everything is covered by the government, every decision about what is and is not covered becomes a political decision, and that is certainly the case um, in the UK, where you know when a, when a, when a prescription drug is not cleared for use in you know, people over 75 years old, it becomes a major uh, story on the front page of the Times of London and you know, everybody hops up and down about it. Um, it's also true that um, other countries deal with these trade-offs more directly than we do. And you know, when, you go, when you visit a hospital, I don't know if you've done this um, uh, in, your, in your time in, in, um, in the UK but recently, but when you visit a hospital in the National Health Service, uh, in England, there are still wards. I mean, we American patients would not tolerate the conditions um, that uh, that most Britons um, put up with going to uh, going to the hospital. You know, we're now used to getting nice private rooms, 
and uh, they're lovely. And the, the hospitals that we go to have, you know, beautiful marble lobbies. And a lot of them have water features. And this is what we expect from our, from our hospitals. Well, there's a cost associated with that. You know, there are trade-offs for everybody. There are trade-offs in the UK. There are trade-offs for us. We're running out of time, so we're going to do a lightning round here. Okay. <laughs> and so I'm going to go like this, meaning shorten the answer. Okay. Um, question, another question from the audience. What could be done for the people who you've reported on who've been financially ruined? Well, unfortunately, charity has become the uh, de facto charity? way of, of, of solving this. You said charity? Charity. Okay, I think that says it all. Next question. How much could we save with getting better control over fraud, ridiculous hospital costs, outrageous surgeries and pr procedures, and uh, defensive medicine? Would that solve the problem that you're reporting on? Uh, yes and no. So it's, there's a, there is an enormous amount of fraud. That probably is not enough to make you know, a, a $20,000 insurance policy cost $10,000. Um, but it would, it, would, it would have an effect, I think, more promising are models that take less, take the good lessons from managed care to disincentivize the excessive use of very high-priced hospital services when they're not necessary. Not as a form of rationing, but as a form of better managing um, the, the kind of care that, 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 that people need. I've got two uh, last questions. One question, it's a little pointed, which is, how do you know what you're reporting? There's, you know, I think this questioner has just got some doubts about some of your strong statements about a uh, consumer-driven model just wants to know, how, why are you so confident? What is it that has led you to some of these conclusions that you're offering today? Um, well, you know, I'm the son of a surgeon, and you know the surgeon's credo is uh, often wrong but never in doubt. Um, uh, I, I think that's... Uh, so, I, I, I mean, we... we <laughs> We've done, a, I will say, we, 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 we did a lot of research um, before, before we did these uh, stories. In addition to the uh, poll we did, we, as I said, we worked with two um, think tanks to crunch a lot of data. We reviewed the academic literature. Uh, I have literally in my office about 20 very thick um, three-ring binders full of the academic studies that have been done about people's shopping behavior, about the burden on Americans with chronic illness if they have uh, high deductible health insurance. There is a large literature out there about the impact now that, um, that cost sharing has on, uh, on American patients. This isn't just sort of stories of, you know, an isolated incident here, an isolated incident, incident there. It's a scientific poll, so it picks up on people's uh, real life experiences coupled with um, you know, a, a pretty in-depth look at the available academic literature out there, which is now pretty darn robust. Doesn't the VA have a good record in terms of uh, cost control and quality care? Uh, they do. I mean, notwithstanding that they have had their issues as well, uh, as we know. Um, but they're, they're a system, and, 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 and in, many, in many respects, um, not least um, getting uh, affordable prescription drugs, they do quite well in part because they negotiate as a large purchaser with, uh, with drug makers and they get so better prices. Here's the, truly the last question. It's from a doctor who's with us and asked for help reconciling these three facts that have emerged in Minnesota. One, healthcare CEO salaries 
are enormous and rising. Second, rural and even urban hospitals are losing money and closing. Third fact, nonprofit systems in Minnesota have inflated costs for basic services. How do you reconcile those three things? <laughs> 30 seconds 30 or less. Seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess I would say the system has a way of perpetuating itself. So all these new hospitals that have gone up all around the country are very expensive. The people who work in them make big salaries. And that raises the cost, the, the, the cost that, that, that these hospitals have to recoup to pay off salaries, to pay not just of their overpaid executives, um, but of everybody who works there. And so the, the way you recoup those costs is you shift costs onto patients. And so, I mean, I guess I'll leave you with this thought, depressing as it may be, that because we as a society have been unable to control healthcare costs, we have now decided that patients must themselves, out of their own bank accounts, bear the direct cost of our inability to control uh, the costs as a society. And I mean, that, if anything, I guess, is the subject of, 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 of our series. Well, that, that seems to me a very depressing way to end. So let me ask you <laughs> a final, final question, which is, if you look in, in Europe, their proportion of, of um, types of, of medical personnel is the opposite of what we have. About two-thirds, this is a generalization, are general practitioners of various sorts, and they have a quarter or a third are specialists. In America, it's the reverse. We have an enormous number, higher proportion, who are specialists who go to school for you know, many, many years and become really uh, experts. Whereas the, the proportion of general practitioners um, of various sorts tends to be much smaller. Is there a way of thinking about community-based care that is a hopeful direction in terms of controlling costs, Yes, and and providing quality care. Yes, there is, and 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 I'm glad you I'm glad you raised that. And 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 we don't even have to go to Europe to actually see this. There are systems now in place in this country that stress primary care. If you or your loved one is lucky enough to go there, it is phenomenal. I wish I could get my own parents into these kinds of systems. They are. Intensive primary care in which primary care physicians work with nurses and specialists in chronic disease. They help patients manage their disease. They help them come into the doctor when they need to go to the doctor. When they call, their phone calls are answered. They oftentimes pick homebound patients up in vans and they bring them to the clinic. And this is not just to make people happy and feel like they're getting five-star treatment. It turns out if you do this kind of stuff, People take better care of themselves. If they're diabetic, they're more successful at managing their blood sugar. And if you're more successful at managing your blood sugar, you're less likely to end up having to go to the hospital. You're less likely to have a foot amputated or have retinopathy or have kidney failure. And that all of that saves money. And that is the secret to, um, in many respects, um, what uh, our competitors globally have done in building primary care-based systems that work. Our system has developed, which is heavily focused on hospitals, heavily focused on specialty care. That's a very, very expensive way to do things. But if we, if we move towards systems that were more based on really good primary care, 
that would save a lot more money than getting rid of healthcare fraud. Who are those primary So there are groups like Iora Health, ChenMed, CareMore. The, they generally take care of Medicare patients, um, uh, a lot of times low-income Medicare patients because these low-income elderly patients often are the most expensive. They're the, 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 they have the biggest challenges in terms of controlling their illness. You can come up and get more information, and I think Noam is actually working on a book on this topic. Okay. So <laughs> this is a little preview of maybe a next visit. Uh, I want to wrap up. Uh, first, I want to just let you know, if you like this program, we've got an incredible 2020 coming up. Uh, includes, uh, we've got a great program, several programs on racial disparities. Uh, I've got some of the biggest stars in the academic world on politics um, and conservative and um, kind of not just uh, not political sort of people. Terrific. Norm Ornstein, uh, Minnesotan, uh, famous for his political analysis, will be coming. Uh, we've got a great program, January 24th. It's very unusual. It's it's on civic education. It's focused on teachers um, in our middle and high schools about how to teach civic uh, education in a time of intense uh, political polarization. We're going to have a lot of teachers here. It's a partnership with the Star Tribune and Education Weekly, so it's, it's a very different kind of thing. It starts at 11.30, and it's going to run for three, three and a half hours. So. It's a big commitment. If you'd like to come, please join us for that. I want to thank the people who made this possible. Lee Chittenden, who is standing in the back, is uh, just such a great partner and making so much of this happen. Mike Carey does the hard work. The rest of us cheer him on, and he's great at that. Um, Scott Kiefer is the best kind of partner you can have. We spend a lot of time talking about health policy issues. I send him some articles. He sends me some articles, and then uh, we debate. It's fantastic. Noam Levy has come here from a much warmer climate uh, <laughs> to share his wisdom. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank all of you. Thank you.